This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. In the days when the judges ruled there, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These two Moabite wives, the name of the one was Ophah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on, her, on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And, then, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Where will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, and should bear sons, will you therefore wait, wait till they were gone? Will you therefore refrain from remarrying? <clears throat> no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone up against me. Then they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Ophah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. When you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman, and the women said, "Is this Naomi?" She said to them, "Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away fully, but and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me?" So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the male, the whereby her daughter-in-law went with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of God. Our friends, let's pray. Our Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your word. Soften our hearts that we might receive that word. Transform our wills that we might be people who do your word and loose our tongues that we might proclaim your word. We ask this for the glory of your Son, your living word, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
Um, friends, uh, just a, uh, a few comments just before we get underway. Um, some of you in your question times last night, that is in your group time, I know that some of you, we disappeared, you see, and uh, I'd said that you could come and ask us some questions about one question. <laughs> um, and that was, uh, there are at least three ways in which Moses prefigures Jesus Christ in these chapters. And some of you wondered what those were. So here's the answers. <laughs> um, do you remember that Moses offers to make atonement, as it were, him and his family? That's number one, okay? He offers to make atonement, that is, to stand in their place. So that's number one. And number two is his mediatorial role. That is, he presents God to the people and the people to God. Okay, so he acts as a mediator. So that's how he's like Christ as well. So Christ is an atonement, uh, offers himself his life as atonement. Uh, Christ mediates between us and God. And the third one is he intercedes on behalf of the people of God, just as Jesus does. So Jesus even now is interceding for us, the book of Hebrews tells us. So there's three things in which Moses is prefigures Christ. Offer of atonement, mediatorial role, presenting God to the people, the people to God, and his intercessions on behalf of the people. Uh, you can think about some more. There may be others, but that's certainly the ones that I could see. Anyway, I want to start with a story today. Um, uh, today was Deborah's favourite day of every year. For today was Shavuot, the celebration of the Feast of Weeks. Yesterday they had gathered greenery and flowers together. They had decorated the house with what they had gathered. They did this to reflect the bringing of the first fruits to God. But they also did it because the ancient story said that the desert bloomed with flowers when the Torah, the law, was given to the Jewish people. Then after that they decorated the house and Devorah went to bed. But now, for now, Devorah watched her father. She saw the tiredness in his face, but she also saw the inward peace and joy, for she knew where it came from, for her father had been up all night. He was a man like the generations of all Jewish men before him. He had spent the night studying the Torah. And now the whole family would go off to the synagogue and they would hear the reading of the ten words. And then would come Deborah's favourite moment. Together as God's people, they would then read the book of Ruth. She was not sure why they did it. Some said they did it because the story took place during the harvest season. Some said they did it because of Ruth's conversion. It was similar to the Jewish people's acceptance of the Torah. Others said that it was because Ruth was King David's ancestor and it was believed that King David was born and died on Shavuot. Deborah didn't care why. She was just glad to hear this story. There were only two books in the Hebrew Scriptures that were devoted to women. One was the book of Esther and the other was this one. And like Esther, it was a book of a most unlikely heroine. But it was more than that. It was a book about hope, a book about godliness, and in the end, a book about God, 
a book about God's amazing and generous love. Yes, so for reading Deborah, for Deborah, reading Ruth was the highlight of her day. She knew the story all the way through in the right order and almost in the reverse order. And it always surprised her. She always learned something new. Yesterday would be a good day. Friends, Deborah is right. She's an imaginary figure. <laughs> but Deborah is right. The book of Ruth is one of the most interesting and stimulating books in the whole of the Old Testament. And what we're going to do today is we're going to take a quick look over this book and uh, we're going to see what we can learn about God's grace and God's people. My prayer is that your lives will be transformed by what we find this morning. However, before we get underway, we need to do a little bit of background work. And so let's get started. I have two important bits of information that I need to have you know and understand. And one of them you should already have got, but in case you weren't here last night or in case you were asleep, I'll tell you again. Okay, I want you to remember the word we learned last night. Do you remember it? Uh, that, that word that describes God's unexpected, unearned, surprising and overwhelming mercy, grace and love. The word is chesed. Okay, it's what God does when he continues on with Israel in Exodus, when, you would, when he doesn't have to. God's chesed so defines God that Israel can recount their history as being the long story of chesed. The long story of chesed. Uh, for he constantly does the surprising and the unexpected. When you expect judgment, he does judge, but it's overwhelmed by his mercy. And sometimes he doesn't judge at all. Now, the reason I've started by telling you this is that the book of Ruth uses the word a number of times. So we're going to have a look at it. We're going to find out where it does and why it does. It shows God's God and people exercising chesed a number of times. And in many ways, I think, the whole book is an exploration of this theme. Unfortunately, most preachers on Ruth don't know and don't notice. And so I want to show you because it's like unlocking the secret of the book of Ruth in many ways. It'll help us interpret this book. Now, that's the first bit of information. Second bit of information is Moabites. I need to tell you a little bit about Moabites because some of you may not know this. The first bit of information comes from the book of Genesis. In Genesis 19, you might remember that God rescues Lot and his daughters from Sodom and Gomorrah. And the daughters fear childlessness because there are no men around except their father. So they make their father drunk and they sleep with him. And the firstborn daughter gives birth to a son and she named his son Moab. He is the ancestor of the Moabites. You can read that in Genesis 19, 36 and 37. The second bit of information comes from the book of Numbers. You see, in the book of Numbers, the people of Israel are making their way through the wilderness. They're on their way from Egypt into the promised land. And as they go there, there, is a, there are a number of group of people who persecute them, but one particularly striking group of people are the Moabites. The Moabites set out to oppose Israel coming into the promised land. And as a result, Deuteronomy says this, that no Moabite can enter the assembly of the Lord. The Moabites are a product of incest 
and the avowed enemies of the people of God. They're the sort of people that Israelites despise, hate, and keep at a distance. Moabites. Remember those, those things and you'll understand a bit about this book. Okay, with that done, let's take a quick run through uh, Ruth chapter 1. Ruth 1 verse 1 says that we are in the time when the judges ruled. And at this time we're introduced to three women. Each are related to a certain Jewish man called Elimelech. Elimelech is mentioned in verse 2. He marries a woman called Naomi. That's woman number one. And verse two says that they have two sons, Marlon and Chilion. Now, for some reason, the family goes off to Moab and stays in Moab. And verse three tells us that while they're there, Elimelech dies. The two sons marry two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Now, let's turn to the problem that's raised in this passage. You see, the problem is Naomi's in a very difficult situation in life. She is in a foreign land. She is a woman. Her husband has died. Then in verse 5, we're told that her two sons die. So not only does she no longer have a husband, she's no longer got sons to look after her, and she's got two dependent women. In other words, she's in a foreign land, isolated, there's no men who are likely candidates for, their ma for um, the marriage of these women back home since they are Moabites, and I've already told you what the problem with Moabites is. It's hard to imagine a woman in a more desperate situation than Naomi. And it's into that situation that there comes news from Israel, and look at verse 6, the news is outlined. The famine has a broken. There is abundant food available. And so, in the, as verse 7 tells us, she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So she hears, there's food. Let's go back home. And that's our introductory section of the chapter. Uh, that opens up to our next second section. The second section of this chapter runs from verse 8 through to 19. Basically, Naomi urges her daughters-in-law to stay. To not to stay in Moab, to not come back to Israel. Orpah listens to Naomi's advice and stays. But not Ruth. At the end of verse 14, we're told that Ruth clings to Naomi. Naomi says to Ruth, follow Orpah's lead. In verse 16, Ruth refuses. And her words of refusal are that some, uh, some of the most exquisite words of devotion in all of Scripture. They are beautiful. Look at them, verses 16 and 17. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you from me. Let me tell you, if you were a husband, you would love a wife who said these things to you. Um, if you're a wife, you'd love a husband who said those things to you. Like, this is an expression of extreme devotion, isn't it? Because it's, it's not just, it's not husband and wife. This is daughter-in-law and mother-in-law. 
it, it's, it's an immensely loyal and godly declaration, isn't it? And Naomi caves in, as you would if you were her mother-in-law. Um, she can see Ruth's determination. And that brings us to the third section of the story. That's verses 19 to 22. In verse 19, the two women arrive back in Bethlehem. The village is excited. I think it's excited because of the food that's available, but also this woman who's returned. And the women wonder at Naomi and they say, could this, could this be Naomi? Now to understand what she's saying, we need to understand the meaning of a couple of names. The name Naomi comes from a Hebrew word meaning to be pleasant. And the name Mara comes from a Hebrew word meaning to make bitter. Now look at what Naomi says in verses 20 and 21. She says, don't call me Naomi. That is, don't call me pleasant. No, call me Mara. That is, call me bitter. Because the, Lord, the Almighty has made my life very bitter. You see, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. Now, do you notice that the two references to the Lord are sandwiched in between two references to the Almighty? Can you see what Naomi is doing? She's making very clear something. It is God who has mistreated her. That's what she's saying. It's a very strong statement. So this is Naomi, distraught, empty, and bitter. And then in verse 22, we move on to the next stage in the drama. The chapter is summarised in chapter 2, is looked forward to. They arrive in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now there's the chapter. I want you to notice something special about this chapter. You see, the chapter uses the word we learnt last night. You wouldn't have noticed it probably. Do you remember that in the Exodus, God's special name was the Lord or Yahweh and is linked to the word kesed? Do you remember that? Now, look at the references to the Lord in chapter 1. In verse 6, the Lord, Yahweh, visits his people and gives them food. In verse 8, Naomi prays that the Lord will deal kindly with her and her daughters-in-law just as they have dealt kindly with her. In verse 9, she prays that the Lord might grant them rest. In verse 13, she says, the hand of the Lord has turned against her. In verse 17, Ruth uses the name of the Lord, Yahweh, in a curse against herself if she should break her vow toward Naomi. And finally, in verse 21, Naomi says that the Lord has caused her to return empty. The Lord has witnessed against her. Now, with that said, I want to show you the one reference to Kesed in the chapter. Look at verse 8. Let me read it to you, substituting the Hebrew word. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show Kesed to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. Did you notice it, you see? Can you hear it? She asks for Kesed to be shown to her. 
but she clearly feels that the Lord has not lived up to his name with her. She wants it for someone else, but she doesn't think that the Lord's been cassette toward her. The Lord's hand instead, she says, has been against her. And the only cassette that she has experienced has been from her daughters-in-law, not from the Lord. I think then that her prayer for the women is a prayer for herself. That's what she wants. She wants not bitterness. She wants Kesed. She wants to see this from God. She longs for God to be like Ruth because her experience of God has not been like her experience of Ruth. She wants something different. She longs for God to be for her and with her, to give her unexpected mercy, kindness and love. And that's how the chapter ends. It's, it's a plaintive cry, isn't it? I've, I've had such good things from Ruth. I really wish I had them from God. That's how it ends. We know God though, don't we? We know that God is the God of Kesed. We know that he has come to the aid of his people. And so we find ourselves asking ourselves at the end of chapter 1, what will, who, will God really come to the aid of this poor, impoverished, destitute, bitter woman? Will God be Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in cassette? That's what we want to know. With that in mind, let's turn to chapter 2. And the first thing that happens in chapter 2 is we're introduced to a new person. And we read this. Now, Naomi had a relative. On her husband's side, from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. So here's the new man in the situation, and we're told a number of things about him. Can you see them there? First, he's a relative of Naomi on her husband's side. Second, he's a man of standing. Probably that means he's a man of substance financially and a man of substance in social terms. If you're a woman here in Singapore, is, is the sort of person that your parents might want you to marry if you're a woman, okay? Um, third, his name is Boaz. Those bits of information uh, stir up hope in us as we read. We think maybe, maybe this could be it. Perhaps this man might be part of God's purpose in turning the bitterness of Naomi into something else. This might, this might be the man. And this passage lifts our hope when we meet Boaz in verse 4. Because Boaz arrives in his fields. It's barley harvest time. And he greets his reapers in the name of the Lord. He says, The Lord, Yahweh, be with you. And they respond by blessing him in the Lord's name. The Lord bless you. He's clearly not only a man of substance, you see. He is a man who knows the Lord. Anyway, let's see what happens. Uh, verse 2, we're reminded of the occasion, barley harvest. In other words, great opportunity for the women to put some food together for the year. And uh, Ruth takes action. She tells Naomi she'll go and see if she can gather some food. And she hopes that she might find someone who will show her favour. And she wanders out and she looks for a likely field. Uh, and she stands there waiting for the harvest to begin, hoping that she'll be able to gather up some of the gleanings. 
Now, um, gleanings are those things uh, Israel was told, when you're reaping, don't go to the corners of your fields. Leave the corners for the poor. And should you forget that there's a sheaf there that you left that's sitting, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the poor. It was Israel's way of caring for the poor. Um, or if you've got um, if you've uh, got olive trees and you shake them to get the olives down, when you finish shaking it, walk away. Pick up the olives from the ground, but leave the ones in the tree so that the poor can go up and get them. They're called gleanings, both of those two things. Um, so, imagine the scene. There's been a famine. Landowners have not had crops for some time. They will be seeking a bumper crop. They'll want everything they can get. Uh, the poor of the land won't have had a good supply of food for some time. They'll be hanging around desperate to get hold of something, seeking to get whatever they can. And it's into that situation wanders Ruth. Now remember who she is. She's a woman in a man's world, number one. She's a foreigner in an Israelite world, number two. Number three, yes, the text reminds us all the time, she's a Moabitess. And a Moabite woman would probably not be exactly welcome in Israel. So what I'm saying is that as Ruth ventures out gleaning, what might she expect? In my view, she could only really expect a human response. And it wouldn't exactly be welcoming. Now, lest you think I might be exaggerating, look down at verse 9. In verse 9, Boaz intimates later that Ruth might be exposed to harassment from young men. The young men need to be charged not to touch her. Why? Because they possibly might. And Boaz knows it. Now scan down to verse 22. Naomi talks about the possibility of Ruth being harmed in one of the fields. Perhaps she is saying that there is every possibility of being bothered or even assaulted in the fields by the men who are working. It's a risky situation, isn't it, for Ruth? So what sort of expectation might Ruth have? It's not very positive, but her experience is something totally different. Verse 3 tells us that as it turned out, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz. Uh, the words as it turned out have connotations of chance in Hebrew. It might even be translated in contemporary English as luck would have it. Okay? Uh, in any case, let's look at what happens. Verse 4, Boaz enters the field. He greets his reapers in the name of the Lord. And then he notices Ruth and he asks after her. In verse 6, the servant in charge of the reapers says to him, Oh, she is the Moabitess who came from Moab with Naomi. Now look at verse 8. Boaz addresses Ruth and he urges her to glean in his field and his field alone. And he offers her protection from possible harassment. But he also provides for her in verse 9, he tells her to freely make use of the water that's available. Now, that's extraordinary. There's no way that she could have expected that. In verse 10, Ruth acknowledges his generosity. She says, why have I found such favour within your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? 
And then in verses 11 and 12, Boaz explains what he's heard about her. He explains that he's impressed with her care of her mother-in-law and leaving her own land to accompany her. But now look at verse 14. Boaz offers Ruth food from his own table. In fact, he feeds her so abundantly that she has some food left over for Naomi. And in verse 15, he gives his, this order to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. In other words, if she wanders out from the corners of the field and goes into where the sheaves are and takes some, it's all right. Don't stop her. Let her do it. In verse 16, he instructs the men to ensure that her gleanings are supplemented by extras. You can imagine it. As you're going along, just make sure you just... You see it so, and he says, you know, just pull out a few stalks for her. Leave them for her to pick up. So what's the end of all of this? Verse 17 tells us that she gleans until evening. And by nightfall she has an epah of barley. That, let me tell you, is an extraordinary amount for a gleaner to have gathered in a day. Extraordinary. I wonder if you can see what's going on. The best that Ruth might have expected is a merely legal response. That's the very best. But she has received an abundance instead. Boaz has been a provider for her. He has been a protector of her. He has been an extravagant benefactor. He has gone well beyond what the law required. He has gone well beyond what Ruth might have expected. Now let's move to the last few verses of the chapter. In verse 18, Ruth returns to Naomi. And Naomi sees what she's gathered and she recognises that something special has occurred this day. And she, she says, well, which man's responsible for what I'm seeing? And then she reflects on the incident theologically. Now, here's the verse to have a look at, verse 70. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Now, you know what I'm going to say now, don't you? Right. Here's the little secret of this passage. Our translators have hidden it from us. But do you know what that word for kindness is? It is kesed. It is that characteristic word for which God is known. It is that action that is associated with his very name. Yahweh, Yahweh, kesed, kesed. And Naomi's point is clear. She's saying, this generosity is not human. No, it's divine. It is the Lord who is the source of such unexpected kindness and overwhelming generosity. And Naomi's theological reflections are helpful in our thinking about Boaz. They explain the references to the Lord in relation to Boaz that we saw earlier. Do you remember all the references to him and the Lord? Boaz is a man of God. He's a man of the Lord. He's a man of the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As Boaz himself indicates in verse 12, his generosity is simply a reflection of the generosity of the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and overwhelmingly generous God under, whom, under whose wings Ruth has sought refuge. You see, Naomi... She knows what's been going on here. She knows that the reaction of Boaz is not just luck or chance, as verse 3 would have said. 
No, it didn't just happen. It wasn't just as luck might have it. No, it was, the, it was the divine providence of God. Naomi knows the source of this generosity. It's against all human expectation. It can only come from God. Please see and hear this. In chapter 1, Ruth, a non-Israelite demonstrates Kesed toward the Israelite Naomi. Now Boaz, an Israelite man of the Lord, shows Kesed toward a non-Israelite Ruth. The man Boaz is the grandfather of David, King David. He's the ancestor of Jesus. He's a man of God and he acts like God. He shows God's overwhelming love to this stranger. Now there's just a hint, if I can tell you this. There's just a hint within the text when you look at his genealogy later on that he may be a descendant of Rahab, the prostitute. In other words, in his own family line, he may have been welcomed into Israel. That is through his, through Rahab, the prostitute. And perhaps he's just doing what he saw Israel do to him. As he was received, he is receiving a foreigner. As he was made Israelite, he wants to do the same with someone else. Through the progeny of this man and this woman, God will show overwhelming love to all strangers, including Australians and Singaporeans, Gentiles, Gentiles, not Jews. He will send his son into the world so that we who were aliens to God's people might experience the same sort of mercy ourselves. This is our God. What an amazing glimpse into the future that we have in this physical ancestor of our Lord. It's incredible, isn't it? Now, let's, uh, I wonder if you can see the implications of all of this. Uh, in this chapter, Boaz is simply acting like God. He knows God from his law, but he knows what is known of God in the law is not the full picture of God. You see, the law could never capture everything about God. God is said. He doesn't just act rightly or legally. The Lord acts in overwhelming kindness and extravagant love. And that's what Boaz does. He acts like God. But we Christians know God even deeper than Boaz ever could have. We know God's extravagant love on the cross. And so our love should be even more extravagant than that of Boaz. Please hear me. Our love should be even more extravagant than that of Boaz. We are called upon to be, act like the God we know in Jesus Christ. And that should happen in every area of our lives. In our family life, in our congregational life, in our social life, in our evangelistic life. Elsewhere, Paul tells Christians to forgive how? As they have been forgiven to accept as they have been accepted. And John makes it clear that we are to love one another even as we have been loved extravagantly by God. We need to hear this. It's very important. God has been amazingly rich in his generosity toward us in Jesus Christ. He has forgiven us, accepted us, 
There was no merit in us, but he brought us to himself. And we are to be like him. Friends, this is to be the mark of our lives. We are to be known as those who love like God. And we are to be like this, not just among those we know, but to the stranger, the alien, the refugee, the disadvantaged, the person from a different skin colour than our own, the uncared for, and this is to be so whether poverty, whether, whether the poverty is social or spiritual. We are to be generous to the materially disadvantaged. We are to be rich in material generosity toward the poor. To the spiritually disadvantaged, we are to be rich in spiritual generosity. That is, we are to share the great news of Jesus in our words, in our support of those who have gone into the world to share it. We, friends, if we are Christian, have come to know God who is rich in mercy. Let us call to the world to find shelter under his wings, as Boaz wants to give. For he longs to gather the world to himself. In fact, the Lord Jesus uses the analogy of wings as he goes to his death. He says, how I'd wish to gather you like a, like a hen would gather the chicks under its wings. Prince Boaz was a man of the Lord and we are to be people of the Lord Jesus Christ. The standards are much higher for us. We are the recipients of God's grace in Jesus. We are his people. We are called to act at his, as his people and to be like him in our actions. Just think, friends, what would a church be like that was like that? That's what we are to be. What would it be like in the workplace if we were like that? What would it be like in all of Asia if the church in Singapore was like that? Okay, let's now turn to Ruth 3. Quick run through the story. Remember in chapter 2, it was Ruth who took the initiative. She went out to glean for barley. She did very well. In this chapter, it's Naomi who takes the initiative. She seeks some longer-term security for Ruth. Now look at verse 1. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you'll be well protected? Then in verse 2, she arranges a plan whereby Ruth would visit Boaz and the threshing floor at night. And in verse 5, Ruth agrees to do what Naomi suggests. Uh, threshing floors, or threshing was a time, uh, let me tell you, for good eating and drinking among the workers. You worked hard all day, you celebrated at night. And uh, largely it was the men celebrating together. Verse 7 tells us that Boaz eats and drinks. We're told that his heart is merry. Uh, in other words, he's in good spirits, he's in a happy mood. Then at the end of the same verse, we hear that Ruth quietly sneaks into where he'd retired for the night. Now, I know you've all got questions at the moment. <laughs> I'm going to help you later on. So just hold off for a moment. Uh, without him waking up, she uncovers his feet. Now, if you were reading in Hebrew, it would be even more complicated for you because feet can mean genitals as well. Right, so if you've got problems, a Hebrew hearer would have even more problems. <laughs> just as her mother-in-law had instructed her back in verse 4. 
Then in verse 8, we're told that Boaz wakes up with a start in the middle of the night. He sees a woman lying at his feet. He demands that she identify herself. And in verse 9, he poses the direct question, Who are you? And for the first time in the book, someone identifies themselves with a name. Ruth gives a very clear and decisive answer. I am your servant, Ruth. She then boldly proposes marriage. That is what I think is going on. Many of our versions of the Bible have it that Ruth asked Boaz to spread his garment over her. Okay? A literal translation would be like this. And it's given in the ESV that Ruth is asking Boaz to spread his wings over her. In other words, she uses the very same language of wings as Boaz had used in the previous chapter. Go back to chapter 2, verse 12. Then Boaz said to Ruth these words, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. But here Ruth adds something. Ruth also mentions that Boaz is her kinsman redeemer. In other words, he's her redeemer, effectively her next of kin. Now let's go back to chapter 3 and see what Boaz does. Look at verses 10 to 12. He responds, he's honest with Ruth, he acknowledges that he may be a redeemer, but there's one, he says, that is nearer than me to the, to the position. In other words, there's one who has priority in claims of her than him. In verse 13, he says, stay the night, and he promises that he'll do what he can in the morning. In the morning, she wakes up before anyone can be recognised. And in verse 14, Boaz notes that no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. In verse 15, he gives her a substantial amount of barley and sends her home. In verse 16, she reports back to Naomi and they talk about what they'll do from here. And in verse 18, Naomi suggests that together they wait to see how things sort themselves out. That is, let's see what happens. Naomi's convinced it'll be sorted out within a day. She's very confident, Naomi. Uh, now, the thing I need to say is that this passage was, is littered with ambiguities. <laughs> the children are all gone, so I can talk about them briefly. <laughs> <laughs> the ambiguities are there in the English, but they are there even more in the original Hebrew. In fact, I think the term ambiguities is a little bit tame, okay? Let me, I could say it's full of double meanings. Let me point them out to you. First of all, there's what Naomi tells Ruth to do in verse 3. She is to wash, put on some perfume, and dress herself in non-working clothes. One way to read this is she's to get ready to seduce him. Can you see the ambiguity there? It doesn't necessarily mean that, but if you're a Hebrew reader, you could read the double meaning, Okay. After all, David does exactly the same actions after he gets up after learning about the loss of his firstborn, firstborn son to Bathsheba. And then there is talk of uncovering... Uh, sorry, and then the next thing to notice is the talk of uncovering legs and wings later on in this chapter. Elsewhere in the Bible, that same language is actually used in relation to intercourse. 
What's more, the term legs is linked to, as I said before, a euphemism for genitals. So it's got all sorts of language which a Hebrew reader would think, I wonder what's going on here. Okay? The Hebrew term to lie down is like the English term to sleep. Okay? That is, it can have sexual connotations as well. Then in the Hebrew, there's a very high proportion of occurrences of the word to know. And in Hebrew, that word to know can have do double duty. Okay? So back in Genesis 4, we're told that Abraham knew his wife and she conceived. Finally, in verses 4, 7 and 14, we're told that Ruth is to go, to come or to go to certain places and often that can have links with sexual intercourse as well. So one of the things we need to ask is why on earth is the author doing this? Why has he got all these, sown all these words through his story? Why is he deliberately placing these ambiguities? What's he trying to achieve? Well, in answer to those passages, we need to look at what, work out what this passage is about. Now, I need to do this. I, I'm sorry to go into the details, but I need to do it because it's what the text does and we want to read what Scripture is doing and why it's doing it. As often in storytelling, one of the ways of working this out is to see if the author's left us any clues that will tell us what this passage is doing and how. And one of the key places to look is clues at the beginning and the end of a particular story. Okay, just all storytelling is a bit like this. Look for the clues at the beginning and the end. Now, look at this story. I want you to look at verse 1. Look at what Naomi says to Ruth. She says, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. I want you to think about the term home. The literal meaning is resting place. Naomi is seeking to find a resting place, some security for Ruth. That, I think, is the goal of what is going on here. Now, with that in mind, I want you to tell you this is not the first time the word has occurred in this book. Flip back to Ruth 1 and look at verses 8 and 9. This is what Naomi wishes for her daughter-in-law. In verse 8, she wishes that the Lord will deal kindly with them or show kesed to them. We've already seen the Lord do that. In Boaz... We've seen someone offer far more than just generosity. But in verse 9, she wishes that they will find rest, rest in the home of another husband. Well, that's what Naomi's about in this chapter, isn't she? She's about finding a home or security for Ruth in the house of a husband. What she is doing is entirely selfless, I think. She has Ruth's well-being in mind. You see, Ruth is dead, dealt dealt well with her. And she, I think, is dealing well with Ruth. She wants to show extraordinary love to her. With that in mind, look at how the chapter ends. The chapter ends with Naomi noting that Boaz will not find rest himself until the matter is sorted out. And the Hebrew word here is different from verse 1, but it shows Naomi's goals are on the way to being achieved. Naomi wants rest and security for her daughter-in-law. Boaz won't find rest until he exhausts, he, he won't rest until he exhausts the possibilities. So there's what I think this passage is about. It's about Naomi seeking rest and security for Ruth among God's people. Now I want to return to the ambiguities. Okay? You see, I think that the author has deliberately included them and the double meanings. 
I think he uses them to show the risks that these women are engaged in. I don't think there's anything deliberate or untoward here, but he's saying other people might read it differently. He's telling us that what Naomi is doing is not without significant risks for her reputation and the reputation of her Moabites, daughter-in-law. After all, think of what might have happened. Ruth might have been discovered by Israelites all dressed up, heading off to the threshing floor, which women are not to do. And any Israelite would have immediately recognised she's doing exactly what her ancestors had done, leading the men of Israel astray. She was taking advantage of a drunk man. They might have thought she's doing what Moabite women did way back in the book of Numbers. She would have been branded as a prostitute leading the people of God astray. Perhaps stoned to death. That's not all. What if, Mo, what if Boaz had mistreated her? What if he had taken her simply for a woman out to take advantage of him and his position? What if he'd misread her intentions and taken advantage of her? What if she had become pregnant by him as a result of lack of integrity? Any hope of finding security and a resting place among the people of God would have been gone, shattered. Can you see what I'm saying? The women and their plans here are risky and the author wants to show us that. They were bold. They were adventurous. They took great risks this night. And as God's sovereignty had it, their risks paid off. Their bold riskiness resulted in a marriage. In the birth of Obed. In the birth of Jesse. In the birth of David. And finally, in the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Princess. It's an amazing story, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. But before I finish up the story, I should say three more things. The first has to do with what actually happened on the threshing floor. Because I know you want to know. <laughs> Please hear what I'm saying. The author of the story did use ambiguity. He did use these terms to show us the risks I do not think that he wanted us to think that anything wrong happened on the threshing floor. Let me tell you why this is so. Look at what Boaz says to Ruth. He tells her, stay here for the night. It means spend the night, stay overnight. It is not a term that has any double meaning anywhere. So in a whole passage full of double meaning, this one doesn't have double meaning. Okay? It's never used with sexual connotations, unlike our stay the night. Okay? Or I presume it's used in Singapore in the same way. Uh, it's the very same term used by Ruth in chapter 1, verse 16. She says to Naomi, where you stay, I will stay. Now, this is the author's signal. We've got a godly man here who's not going to do anything wrong. He, is, he like her, is not interested in a night's sex on the, on the threshing floor. He's after acting in a godly and right fashion and he wants what Naomi wants. He wants this godly woman to have a permanent place among the people of God and sleeping with her on the threshing floor this night is not going to give her that place. 
Second footnote is to notice the use of the word cassette in this passage. Did you spot it? Did you spot it? It occurs in verse 10. Look at what Boaz says. He says, The Lord bless you, my daughter. The cassette. This cassette is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. Here is Ruth again. A woman who has, been, who has shown surprising and overwhelming kindness to her mother-in-law. She's ventured out on this rather risky venture at Naomi's insistence. She has staked much on this venture and he knows it. So there's one more thing to notice. Look at verse 17. Ruth returns home with an abundance of barley and she reports what Boaz had said and she says, you must not go, uh, he had said, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. When Naomi returned from Moab in chapter 1, she used these very same words. She spoke about having returned empty. But now, her selfless generosity toward her daughter-in-law has meant that she's got a whole lot back. She's been filled. And that fullness will continue. In chapter 4, we'll see her nursing the child of, that this union orchestrate was you know, orchestrated. You know, it's just wonderful. If you've read the whole book, it's that climactic moment when you see her nursing the child. In chapter, and the women of the village will say at that time to Naomi, the pleasant and no longer bitter, Naomi has a son. Now, there is Ruth, chapters 1 to 3. We've dealt with three occurrences of our special word. In chapter 4, we'll see their fruit. Ruth will be redeemed. She'll be incorporated into Israel. She will give birth to King David's father. But what I want you to notice is what I said before. Friends, God's kesed does not just belong to God. Let me explain what I mean. God is a God of grace. He is a God of kesed. And God's kesed is designed to flow not just from him, but those who come from him, his people. It is designed to flow from them. They are to be like their God. They too are to be dominated by surprising, overwhelming and obligated kindness and mercy. They are to be surprisingly forgiving when they have been sinned against. They are to be overwhelmingly welcoming, even as God has been overwhelmingly welcoming to them. Welcoming them into his family despite sin. They are to love in an un unobligated, kind and merciful way, even as God has acted toward them. Friends, what I want to ask in my closing words for this, this morning, uh, for this session, will you be like this? Will you be like this? And will you be like it in your congregational life? Will you be like it in all your ordinary relationships? Will you be like it in your marriages? Will, we, will you be like it toward your children? Will you be like it with your time, your money, your gifts, your family life? Will you be people of the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, 
Will your generosity overwhelm any judgment that you have to hand out? I remember when I took this on board in my own family, I decided it would change all my attitudes toward my children. It was around about the time I was preaching on uh, these passages. I thought, what will this mean for my relationship with one of my sons for whom he was in his teen years and things were really difficult? I thought, what would it mean for my relationship with my son? I thought, what it means is instead of just telling him off all the time, I might go and work with him and do things with him and do the surprising thing. Can you see? If you've had this, God show this generosity to you, you will show it to others and you'll be overwhelmed not by judgment but by kindness. That will change everything if we do it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that you are the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God. Please help us to be like you, we pray, for we have seen your amazing generosity in your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the Book of Ruth is the positive side of the story. The next session is the not-so-positive side. We get to Jonah. Okay. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.